We live in a time when Christmas has become a controversial holiday. If you doubt that statement, just try putting up a manger scene on public property in many communities across this country. Or try saying Merry Christmas instead of the ubiquitous Happy Holidays. Sometimes it seems as if there are more threats of lawsuits this time of year than Christmas carols. Every year, more and more people get offended by what were once considered innocent displays of Christmas cheer. And to be sure, sometimes Christians can be offensive in the way we share our faith and we don't disagree with those who argue for not subjecting others to unnecessary embarrassment. But at the heart of the matter is this truth. Some people are unhappy with Christmas because they want nothing to do with Jesus Christ. They've heard enough, they've seen enough, and like Ebenezer Scrooge, they say, Bah humbug to the baby who sleeps in heavenly peace in the manger. I wish it were not so, and there is very little we can do about it. By that I mean unhappy people are unhappy in themselves. And until there's a change on the inside, nothing we do or say will make much difference. And I mention this not to criticize anyone or to deny people the right to their unbelief. It's just a fact of life. Unbelief has a long and honored history in America. For that matter, the first Christmas was also met with indifference and with unbelief, and in the case of Herod, outright hostility. So perhaps it is true that the more things change, the more they stay the same. There are still those who would devalue Jesus Christ by making him simply a good man, a teacher of morality, a religious leader, or perhaps one among many saviors in the world. The practical effect of devaluing Jesus is always the same. If we can reduce Jesus to something less than God in human flesh, then we can put him in a box and we can forget about him. After all, if he's just one more ancient teacher of morality, then maybe his words should be studied in a classroom, but they can hardly be taken as definitive. And certainly we don't need to trouble ourselves with the need to worship an ancient teacher or sing songs in honor of his birth. So with that in mind, I want us to revisit the birth of Christ today in order to ask an all-important question. Who is the baby in the manger? On one level, we know who he is. He is Jesus Christ, born of the Virgin Mary. This we believe and this we proclaim in the words of the Apostles' Creed, along with all other Christians. But that hardly exhausts the answer. So who is this baby and who is he to us? What is our answer to the postmodern reductionism that turns Jesus into something less than God incarnate, the Word made flesh? It would seem that our only reliable source for answering these questions is the Bible, the Word of God. And if we go to the Bible, we quickly discover that it will not allow us to reduce Jesus in any way whatsoever. Jesus is truly and completely God. In the New Testament book of, first John, uh, of, of the Gospel of John, 
chapter 1, verse 1, it says, In the beginning, the Word already existed. The Word was with God, and the Word was God, and he existed in the beginning with God. But you may ask, is the Bible really clear on this topic? And I would answer yes, and I could prove it to you from several different passages. But for today's message, we will limit ourselves to just one. The majestic opening verses of the New Testament epistle to the Hebrews. In just three verses, we discover that Jesus is God's final word to humanity. And so that we don't misunderstand, the writer gives us a sevenfold description of who Jesus is. I invite you to hear these words from Hebrews chapter 1. Long ago, God spoke many times and in many ways to our ancestors through the prophets. And now in these final days, he has spoken to us through his Son. God promised everything to the Son as an inheritance. And through the Son, he created the universe. The Son radiates God's own glory and expresses the very character of God. And he sustains everything by the mighty power of his command. When he had cleansed us from our sins, he sat down in the place of honor at the right hand of the majestic God in heaven. Now let's break down these verses into the seven key descriptions. First in verse 2, God promised everything to the Son as an inheritance. God has appointed Jesus as heir of all things. Now, I understand this from a personal point of view. About 15 or 20 years ago, my parents finally took my encouragement and made a will. I guess today it's called an estate plan, but then it was a last will and testament. And in sitting down with their attorney, they made sure that my name, along with my two brothers, was written into that will. That meant that we shared in my parents' estate. It also meant, I later found out, that we received a house full of things that they used to wear and things they never organized or got rid of during their 60-some years of marriage. We received all of that because we were heirs to what my parents possessed. The same is going to be true for our three kids. They are named in our will. And after Jan and I are gone, they can go through our clothes They can take anything they like. It's fine with me because we're planning on a new wardrobe when we get to heaven. And that one that fits good and never uh, loses its style. To say that God has appointed Jesus heir of all things means that God has given everything to his son. The deepest oceans, the farthest stars, the darkest corners, the highest mountains... It all belongs to him. Today it doesn't appear that everything belongs to Jesus because Satan is a squatter who illegally claims the earth as his domain. But in the end, Satan will be overthrown and Jesus installed as the rightful king of the universe. This means that when we come to the end of everything, Jesus is there. It may seem from a 
brief glance at the scoreboard that Satan is winning in this cosmic struggle between good and evil. But it is temporary. And when it's all said and done, when it's all said and done, those who stand with Jesus will find themselves on the victorious side. As Isaac Watts put it in his great hymn written in 1719, Jesus shall reign where'er the sun doth its excessive journeys run. His kingdom spread from shore to shore till moons shall wax and wane no more. Again, from verse 2. Through the Son, he created the universe. Jesus is the agent of creation. He is the Lord of history. As the Father's command, he brought the universe into being and he wrote the script for the unfolding centuries that followed. Through Jesus, God made everything. Now there's really only two choices a person can make as we study the universe. Either we believe that everything is the result of infinite time plus blind chance, or we believe that the universe is the result of God's design. The second choice means that all true science leads back to God. All true biology leads to God. All true botany or chemistry or physics or geology or astronomy leads back to God. The father delegated to his son the work of bringing the universe into being and nothing was made except through him. Now think for a moment about these first two great statements. Jesus Christ is the agent of creation and he is heir of all things. He was there at the beginning and he will be there at the end. And he is the Lord of everything in between. Truly he is the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, the creator, the Lord, the King. Everywhere we turn in this life, we run into Jesus. We have to shut our eyes to keep from seeing him. And this is why atheism is the most unnatural philosophy in the world. We are made in God's image with an inborn desire to know God. And with the knowledge of God streaming in from every side, we have to deliberately reject the truth to become an atheist. Let's make it more personal. Not only did the Lord Jesus create the universe, he also created you and me. Psalm 139 verse 14 says, Thank you for making me so wonderfully complex. Your workmanship is marvelous. We owe every part of our physical existence to the Lord Jesus Christ. And the intricacies of the human body are an example I won't go into detail, but, I, but think about the cells of the human body. How blood is pumped through arteries and veins and capillaries to every muscle and every organ. Think about how oxygen is delivered through the body as well as nutrients and hormones and antibodies. Think about how we fight infection with white cells and how platelets help to clot the blood. Think about the delicate balance of electrolytes and the work of our kidneys and lungs to keep us going each and every day. 
How can anyone study the complexity of the human body and think that all of this has happened just by chance? It takes more faith to believe that than to believe that our body was divinely created by God. John 1, verses 3 and 4 says, God created everything through him, the Son, and nothing was created except through him. The word gave life to everything that was created. Let's move on to verse 3. The Son radiates God's own glory. The word for radiance was used for sunlight streaming from the sun, and Jesus is the blazing radiance of the glory of God. What sunlight is to the sun, Jesus is to God. It would be easier to try to separate sunlight from the sun than to separate the sun from God the Father. Now, you may have heard me say last week, if you want to know who God, uh, who Jesus is, or who God is like, look at Jesus and his earthly uh, life. He is not some grimy, blurry image of the Almighty. He isn't the sun peeking through the clouds. He is the blazing, magnificent revelation of God himself. Jesus is a clear picture of God, and he radiates the glory of God. Theologians have a word for this. They say the Son is co-essential with the Father. That means the Father and the Son share the same essence. The Father is God and the Son is God. Also in verse 3, he expresses the very character of God. Now the phrase very character or exact representation comes from a Greek word from which we get the English word character. Jesus shares in the character of God. This word was used for the impression made by an engraving tool when it was stamped into metal in order to make a coin. The image on the coin was precisely the image on the engraving tool. So Jesus is stamped with the image of God. This is why St. Athanasius said, Jesus, whom I know is my Redeemer, cannot be less than God. The Son radiates God's own glory. He expresses the very character of God. He is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. And these two expressions taken together are a powerful statement of the Son's full deity. Theologians refer to Jesus as the only begotten Son, and that term means the one and only. We can truly say that not only is Jesus the Son of God, he is also God the Son. And when we see Jesus, we have seen as much of God as is possible for us to see. Verse 3, he sustains everything by the mighty power of his command. Can you define gravity? Now, we've known what gravity is for hundreds of years, but how it works and what it is or where it comes from is still somewhat of a mystery. There is a vast movement in science today seeking to discover what makes the universe hold together. What is the power behind the power behind the power? 
What is the ultimate force in the universe? And our text makes clear that the answer is not a what, but a who. What makes the universe hold together? The writer to the Hebrew says, Jesus Christ is the power behind all power. He holds the universe in place by his powerful word. Now note that this is written in the present tense. Even now, Jesus is sustaining the whole universe. All things hold together in him and for him and by him. His power is greater than nuclear power. His force is mightier than the mighty force of the Star Wars movies. His might is mightier than the might of all people on earth. Think of it. Were Jesus to speak the word, this community would be no more. Just a word and we would all perish. Do you realize that if Jesus stopped thinking about you and me for even a moment, we would cease to exist? We owe our next breath to the fact that Jesus Christ is thinking about us and he sustains us so that we can breathe. Without him, we would not be hearing these words today. It is ironic to consider that even atheists must use the power he provides to deny his very existence. They shoot their arrows of unbelief on the ground that he has provided. Even atheists owe their existence to the one they so vigorously deny. Jesus is the nucleus of creation. He is the glue that holds together all of the galaxies. Again in verse 3, when he had cleansed us from our sins. The King James Version adds the words by himself after the word he in this verse, and, he, and I think it makes the point. Note the tense. It, it, has, it is he, he had cleansed, not will cleanse or is cleansing. Jesus died once for all time. His death on the cross was the complete payment for our sins. That is why he cried out, it's finished. He purged us from our sins. I was dirty, he was clean. I became dirty that I might be made clean. Our sins have been forgiven and removed through Jesus' death on the cross. This means that all of our efforts of self-reformation as a means of salvation are doomed to failure. We can cleanse, clean ourselves up a little bit, or at least we can try, but it will not help us gain merit with God. It is only by Jesus' atoning death that we are forgiven by God. To add anything else to the work of Christ is nothing less than blasphemy. Salvation means trusting Jesus Christ so completely that if his death is not enough to take us to heaven, we're not going to get there. Jesus died that he might save us. That is why the angel declared in Luke 2, 11, the Savior, yes, the Messiah, the Lord has been born today in Bethlehem, the city of David. In these pluralistic days, when the world wants to water down what we believe, let us declare this truth very plainly. Jesus is not just a good way to get to heaven or the best way to heaven. He is the only way to the Father. 
Again in verse 3, he sat down in the place of honor at the right hand of the majestic God in heaven. He sat down when he returned to heaven because his work was done. Nothing can be added to the work of Christ that, was, that he accomplished on the cross. And when it comes to salvation, there is no room for self-cleansing, for penance, for human merit. God is fully, fully satisfied with the sacrifice of his son. Nothing can ever be added to the merit of his sacrificial death. And until we come to the end of trying to be good enough all on our own and trust Jesus, we can never be redeemed. Until we are satisfied with what Jesus has, has done, we are still in our sins. Jesus sits today at God's right hand because it is the highest honor God could give his son. If there was another crown, he would wear it. If there was another honor, he would have it. But the right hand of God the Father is the highest honor in the universe. And that's where Jesus is today. We may say with confidence that Jesus is at the very center of the universe. He is Lord and he is King. He is where God is. We all want an inside source, don't we? A friend in high places, someone who can help us when we're in trouble. Sometimes reporters talk about a highly placed source who gave them certain information. The higher the source, the closer we come to the seat of power. Since the Son is at the Father's right hand, we have a friend in heaven who dwells eternally at the throne of God. And when we pray, we are talking to one who is at the center of all things. Even now, Jesus reigns from heaven. Even now, he reigns over Satan. He reigns over the elements of nature. He reigns over the past and the present and the future. He reigns over cancer and heart attacks and over death itself. And someday soon he will return to earth and establish his kingdom and sin and evil and suffering will be no more. Philippians chapter 2 verses 9 through 11 says, Therefore God elevated him to the place of highest honor and gave him the name above all other names, that at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue declare that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Today we confess this by faith. One day the whole universe will bow, willingly or unwillingly, to openly declare that Jesus Christ is Lord. Who is this baby whose birth we celebrate? Our text says he is heir of all things. He is the creator of the universe. He is the radiance of God's glory. He is the exact representation of God's nature. He is the sustainer of all things. And he is our savior. And now he is seated at God's right hand. That's who Jesus is. This is his true identity. The baby born to Mary that night in Bethlehem over 2,000 years ago. But who is Jesus to you? Do you know him? Is he your savior? 
As we come to the close of this message, let me encourage you today to think carefully about who Jesus is. You don't have to take my word for it out. Check it out for yourself. This is far too important of an issue to decide lightly. And you don't have to believe what I'm saying just because I said it. Take the time to check this out for yourself. Read the New Testament. Make up your own mind. But whatever you do, don't be casual about Christ. What you believe about the baby of Bethlehem is a life and death matter with eternal implications. In just 12 days, Christmas will be here. And then all too soon, we will launch into another busy year. Before you take down the ornaments and put away the Christmas music for another year, take time to discover who Jesus really is. Don't walk away from the manger this year without coming to grips with the tiny baby who sleeps there. Who is he? Where did he come from? Why was he born? And what difference does his coming make in your life? Find out if what the angel said is true. And if it's true, make this time a time to get to know him better. There is no important, more important quest in all the universe than this. If you will truly seek to know God, you will eventually be led by the Holy Spirit to Jesus Christ. All that God has to say to us can be wrapped up in one word, Jesus. And not just any Jesus, but only the Lord Jesus Christ revealed in the New Testament. He alone is the Lord from heaven. He alone is the one who can save us. All that God has for you and me is wrapped up in his son. And no matter what difficulties we face or the decisions we must make, in the end, God leads us back to that one simple one-word answer. Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the Lord of glory. We stand amazed that the eternal God should enter our world as a helpless baby in order that one day he might die to set us free from our sins. We thank you for that. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for coming to earth. Thank you for dying on the cross and rising from the dead. Loving Father, grant that our hearts today might be filled with joy during this Christmas season. And it's in the name of Christ, our Lord and Savior, that we pray. Amen.